Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. Today we are continuing the Tulip series and we are talking about election and predestination in Arminianism. So last week we briefly defined predestination. We laid out that preliminary discussion on it. Um, But today we are going to be answering uh, what is the Arminian conception of election and predestination. But before we begin... Uh, we have two questions that we're going to merge together because there is agreement between Calvinists and Arminians on these points. The first question being, does God elect or choose people to service only or to salvation or to both? And the second question is, is election corporate, individual, or both? Meaning, does God elect a class of people, you know, whether you're in Christ or in Adam, or does he elect people individually? So here, um, classical Arminianism and Calvinism find agreement in saying that God elects people to salvation and also for service. Uh, there's cases of this both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those who are elected to salvation further are logically, by extension, called to service, service of God. Uh, furthermore, both Calvinists and Arminians typically agree that there is a corporate and individual aspect of election. So... People are individually elected and they are corporately elected as they join in the body because a body or a corporate body is made up of individuals. Matthew Pinson on the Arminian conception of election and predestination simply states this, quote, The classic Arminian doctrine of predestination is that God does indeed choose individuals. He elects believers for eternal salvation and reprobates unbelievers to eternal damnation. Hence, the traditional Arminian doctrine is the conditional election of individuals. Um, In his book, Arminian Theology, Roger Olson also affirms the conditional election of individuals to salvation while stating that the election of the church is unconditional. So what does that mean? Well, Olson explains that in Arminianism, the church's election is unconditional. The church will unconditionally go to a particular destination. But individuals are elected based on their free act of accepting or resisting the grace of God. It is conditional upon their acceptance or resistance. And this is where we get the idea of conditional election. Being elect means that you have met the condition of accepting God's grace. Roger Olson will say the following, quote, Arminians interpret the biblical concept of unconditional election, that is predestination to salvation, as corporate. Thus, predestination has an individual meaning that is foreknowledge of individual choices and a collective meaning that is an election of a people. The former is conditional, the latter is unconditional. God's predestination of individuals is conditioned by their faith and God's election of a people for his glory is unconditional. The latter will comprise all those who believe, end quote. Arminian Grant Osborne and Matthew Pinson both assert that the modern Arminian emphasis on corporate election at the expense of individual election, is a newer development, but one that makes distinctions with little difference in that God has chosen individuals who form the church. These Arminians will go on to argue that individual election is evident in Scripture, especially whenever you see that there are very names written in the Book of Life, and what can this be except for individual predestination? The sentiment by these Arminians is uh, in agreement with how Calvinists view the discussion, that This new focus on corporate election at the expense of an individual election is a false dichotomy in that individuals always make up a corporate body 
and that this hyper elevation of corporate election to get around individual election doesn't add up with the scriptural data. So here is a point of agreement between Calvinists and classical Arminians. Now, um, Pinson and Olson and others will argue that the classical position in Arminianism has always maintained individual as well as corporate election together. Matthew Pinson will go on to state, quote, almost no Orthodox Christian from before the 17th century affirmed what is today called corporate election. Jacob Arminius discussed only individuals in connection with New Testament doctrines on predestination and election. Of course, he discussed individuals in both the singular and plural. This is necessary to say because some theologians who advocate for corporate election use the New Testament's plural language as evidence for corporate election, as though when Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, this entails corporate election because the language is plural. However, this is a flawed premise since it would entail that I, as an individual Christian, have not been adopted as a son. Arminius' writings on election are permeated with individual language. He believed that God is always relating to people in his predestining decrees, whether elective or reprobative, as individual persons. Thus, for example, he averred that though Christ died for the reprobate, he did not hold them as their own, and he does not know them as his own or acknowledge them as his own, end quote. So Pinson goes on to point out that classical Arminianism does not make for an abstract election of classes um, as corporate election typically does, but rather that election is conditional along with reprobation being conditional and individual as well. So the Arminian position argues for conditional election um, on the basis that salvation is conditioned in believing and election is conditioned on belief. Pinson states, quote, Predestination is an eternal administration of what is taking place in the lives of the elect in time. Thus, if salvation and damnation are conditional, then election and reprobation are conditional. This accords with the gospel revealed in Holy Scripture. Now, since Calvinism and Arminianism agree regarding individual elections to salvation, the question ultimately becomes whether or not key texts teach unconditional or conditional election. Now, just as a refresher, unconditional election teaches that election, that is the, the choosing of a people to salvation, is not based on anything seen in man, including foreknown faith or future knowledge of one's acceptance of the gospel, but solely based on God's will. God, by no condition met by man, elects or chooses people for salvation. Conditional election is the idea that God's choosing of people to salvation is based on those who will accept the call of the gospel. And this will all get fleshed out as we discuss these positions more in depth. So let's look into the Arminian position and how they reason through some key texts. And we're going to rely mostly on Pinson and four lines um, for this section. So let's look at Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30 reads this, quote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. End quote. Now, the big battleground on this text in both views is the word foreknew. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The question is, does this foreknowledge refer to what God knows to be true in the future? That is, whether or not he knows 
who will have faith or those who will not have faith, or whether or not he foreknows in a way that it is ordaining those whom he will predestined. Or put another way, does this verb translated as foreknew indicate a foresight, knowing beforehand, or foreordination, that is, ordaining something beforehand? Here you'll just have to refer back to foreknowledge in the earlier episodes on the human will in both Arminian and Calvinism to better understand where they come from. But Pinson and Fourlines argue that to know beforehand is how the term should be understood, and they push back against the notion of foreordination. According to them, foreordination would be redundant next to predestination when the text indicates that foreknowledge leads to predestination. Furthermore, Pinson and Jacob Arminius would find agreement with Calvinists in that the term denotes this idea of foreloving a people, but they would say that this is not only an affection knowledge, but also the foresight of those believers' acceptance of the gospel. For Arminius, the term foreknowledge is an affectionate foreknowledge, but that foreloving cannot be true of the one without Christ. Pinson quoting Arminius says this, quote, As Arminius perceptively argued, God can regard no sinner with affection beforehand and love him as his own, unless he has foreknown him in Christ, and he has regarded him as believing upon Christ. God acknowledges no one from amongst the sinners as his own, and loves no one to life eternal except in Christ and on account of Christ. Thus, the word foreknowledge also means that God foreknows in the simple sense of prescience, because the only way he can affectionately foreknow people is if he knows them as believers. And to know them as believers, he has to know the fact that they are believers, a fact that he cannot help but know because he is omniscient, end quote. Pinson further continues, quote, No one can become conformed to the image of God's Son unless he is a believer. The text does not say that God predestined people to believe. It says that he predestined those whom he foreknew as believers to the conformity to Christ's image. The only way someone can be conformed to Christ's image is by being in Christ through faith. And since God is consistent in his salvific plan in both time and eternity— he had to have taken individuals' faith into consideration and eternity. Otherwise, how could he have predestined them to be conformed to Christ's image? End quote. So in the summary of the passage, Pinson will go on to further state this. In verse 29, it teaches that those whom God affectionately foreknew in Christ, which means that he had to foreknow that they would be in Christ by faith, he predestined them to be conformed to Christ's image. Verse 30 states that these people were also called, justified, and glorified, but it does not deal with two questions. First, whether the non-elect received the same call but resisted it, or second, whether everyone who is justified will also be glorified. The text simply states that those whom God foreknew in Christ from eternity received a call that they did not ultimately reject, thus they will eventually be glorified. Nothing in the text suggests that God's choice of individuals for eternal salvation is unconditional." End quote. So in essence, the passage doesn't speak about those who have resisted God's grace, but those whom God has foreknew would accept God's grace. So what about Ephesians and Arminianism? Um, we're just going to look briefly at Ephesians and highlight the Arminian position, and then we'll look at Romans 9. The key text in Ephesians is Ephesians 1, 4 through 11, which most of us are familiar with. Quote, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So when it comes to Ephesians, the Arminian will point out that all of the blessings are found in Christ. And because Arminians hold that God's work of predestination is something that occurs, quote, before the foundation of the world, end quote, they would maintain that this text doesn't exclude conditional election. Arminians would say that God's choice of individuals in Christ, according to his good pleasure and will, in verse 5, doesn't mean that God necessarily chooses without particular conditions that God established i.e. the condition of faith and conditional election. Um, the Arminian would argue that, quote, the words themselves do not tell us which applies in any given instance. Indeed, all of God's acts are according to the good pleasure of his will. For the Arminian, this text just indicates that the merit of Christ and all the spiritual blessings of Christ are apprehended by faith. Instead of being a text on unconditional election, uh, because the text says that God chose us in him, it entails conditional election. So to summarize, because the text doesn't explicitly give off the impression of unconditional election, and because there is this presentation of those whom are in Christ, it must be conditional election, not unconditional election. This understanding that there is no indication of unconditional election in Ephesians is applied to other passages as well. So this principle will carry on. And so this becomes the the framework, right? Um, which really, whenever we get to Ephesians 1, we'll see that Calvinists will flip this argument and say that conditional election is being loaded into this idea of God's goodwill and pleasure. This idea of, well, this God's goodwill and pleasure are these conditions that have to be met before he predestined before the foundation of the world. And the Calvinists will ultimately say that this is loading more into the text than what is clearly established and that unconditional election is just as reasonable, if not more so, than conditional election in this text, which really comes to this impasse, this impasse that the word foreknew in Romans 8 is particularly important in how we uh, begin these discussions. And I think that's really where a big point of contention will lie um, in these conversations. So while we will get to Romans 8 from the Calvinist position later, we have one more text to discuss from the Arminian position, and that is Romans 9. Um, for Arminian interpretations of Romans 9, there are different focuses generally. Um, often you'll find a focus on conditional election, but as we've seen, the classical reform position doesn't make that emphasis as modern Arminianism does. And so here we're going to focus on a classical or reformed interpretation of Romans 9, and I'm going to rely again on Pinson and Fourline's uh, four lines in his book, Classical Arminianism, has a whole chapter on cha uh, Romans 9. And then uh, Penson also relies on four lines for his exposition on the text as well. Um, so first, let's let's ask why we're talking about Romans 9. Well, Romans 9 follows immediately after that passage of Romans 8. And there's a lot of discussion about electing and choosing in God's will and human will. And so this becomes a point of contention between Arminians and Calvinists. And for the Calvinists, this is almost a checkmate text. While for the Arminians, there are many Arminians who will say that this is a difficult text that we have to work with and deal with. And so there's a lot of ink spilt on this text on the subject. So when it comes to Matthew Pinson on the question of does Romans 9 teach unconditional election, he gives a firm no. So Forline and Pinson uh, will see Romans 9 as to show 
believers that they are saved by faith alone. It is not teaching unconditional election or reprobation. Uh, to explain this interpretation, Pinson says the following, quote, Paul has been preaching that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, which entailed that most Jews were not part of that covenant. The Jewish response that Paul anticipated was that if God had rejected most of the Jews, God's word or covenant with Abraham was of no effect. According to Arminius, Paul's burden is to show that God's word still stands, even if Jews who do not have faith in Christ are excluded from God's promises and blessings, just as some descendants of Abraham and have always been excluded. Thus, the question of the text is not whether people are elected unconditionally, but whether God's word fails if Jews who seek righteousness by the law instead of by faith are excluded from the covenant, end quote. So it's at this point that um, I would highly recommend you that you just pause this episode, go and read Romans 9, 1 to 3 times, and then come back before proceeding, because I'm not going to walk through the text verse by verse. But instead, I'm going to summarize the Armenian perspective and you'll get lost if you don't read it beforehand. Um, so for Arminius, this text, instead of being about individual election, has its focus upon correcting the notion that many Jews had. That is that being a Jew automatically denoted election. That is, the text is correcting the idea that one is saved by their birth or descent. Instead, for the Armenian, their argument is focused upon correcting this and pointing out that salvation is not corporate but individual and that faith is required on the part of the individual to be a child of promise rather than a child of the flesh. Child of the flesh being a child in terms of descendant um, and child of promise being a child of faith who is engrafted into Abraham. So when it comes to Paul's discussions around Jacob and Esau in this text, the position is that Paul is utilizing them as types similar to how he does in Galatians 4, 21 through 31 with Ishmael and Isaac, which you should pause and go read that too, just to kind of get that, um, you know, oriented. So in this, Esau represents a child of flesh and Jacob represents the child of promise. Linking this text to Galatians, Paul expresses that those with faith are the children of promise in verse 28. And Pinson explains this, quote, Verses 6 through 13 are not dealing with individual election or reprobation, but with Israel's redemptive history. Paul is demonstrating that not all of Abraham's descendants were the covenant descendants of Abraham, and he uses God's choice of Isaac and Jacob and the rejection of Ishmael and Esau in the history of redemption to illustrate that fact. This means that the Jewish people could not claim to be saved based simply on the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Furthermore, God's choice of Jacob over Esau emphasizes God's not basing his choice on anything good or bad that they had done in 9-11. Paul's point here is that salvation is by faith alone, not because of works. Paul reinforces this idea in verse 32, which indicates that the reason for God's rejection of the Israelites is because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, end quote. The church fathers emphasize that God's loving of Jacob and hating of Esau are conditional based on divine foreknowledge, which he obviously had before they were born, end quote. So Paul in verse 14 of chapter 9 states the following, quote, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, end quote. Pinson argues that this line is not about the injustice of God's unconditional election, 
but that the objection Paul is anticipating is that, quote, if God had failed to make good what they thought was his promise of absolute election of all Jews, it would mean that he had failed to keep his word and that he was unjust, end quote. Pinson elaborates that Paul is defending God's justice against claims that God would be unjust for not saving all Jews according to the covenant made with Abraham based on physical descent. To continue, quote, Paul says that God cannot be unjust and then argues that God's rejection of unbelieving Jews is just because of the sovereignty of God in salvation. In the next few verses, Paul provides illustrations from Israel's history of God's sovereignty in the plan of salvation to show that God's plan has always been not a matter of natural descent, nor of the works of the law, but of faith. Paul wants to illustrate two principles. First, God is just in choosing some, but not all, from Israel for salvation. Second, the Jews are not in a position to argue with God, end quote. So the example that follows verse 14 regarding uh, God's extension of compassion is not considered a point of God's divine unconditional election, but rather, quote, the simple question one must ask is, on whom does God desire to show mercy? Paul clearly answers this question in 930 through 33 and the entirety of chapter 19, especially verses 10 through 2 which details that he desires to show mercy to Jew and Gentile alike if they will have faith in Jesus the Messiah. Indeed, he is stretching out his hand to beckon Israel to this faith, but they are resisting his gracious call, end quote. The Arminian argues thus that the point that Paul is seeking to emphasize is that God is the arbiter of what salvation consists of rather than human beings, particularly that salvation is not by works or human will or exertion, but by God's grace and mercy. Now, the illustration about Pharaoh's hardening of the heart, the Armenian will say that the argument is that Paul is indicating that mercy is shown to those who do not resist, yet God will further harden the heart of those who do resist. Furthermore, Paul in Romans 11 points out that there is still hope for the hardened Jews who can respond in faith to the Messiah. When it comes to the illustration of the potter and the clay, this refers to the reality that humans have no place to argue against God regarding the terms of salvation. The argument is that instead of giving way to unconditional election, God instead determines the conditions for salvation, i.e. faith, not just mere physical descent or works of the law. On the language of the prepared vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, Arminius and Pinson will state that Romans 9 teaches conditional double predestination. Quote, God determined to make people vessels of mercy who should perform the condition of the covenant. Those who should transgress it and should not desist from transgressing, he determined to make vessels of wrath. In essence, Arminius remarked, God makes man a vessel. Man makes himself a bad vessel or sinner. God decrees to make man, according to conditions pleasing to himself, a vessel of wrath or of mercy, which in fact he does when the condition has been either fulfilled or or willfully neglected, end quote. Uh, Pinson will actually continue, quote, This gets back to the question, Whom does God will to harden? As Arminius taught, God wills to harden those whom he foreknows will not meet the faith condition of the covenant, the children of the flesh. On whom does God will to have mercy? The answer is, those whom he foreknows will meet the faith condition of the covenant, the children of the promise. Now, to summarize this whole section, we're going to just quote Pinson's summary on Romans 9, and then I would highly recommend you go back, reread Romans 9 with this all in mind, and then we will next time get into election and predestination and Calvinism. 
Pinson states the following, quote, Paul's purpose in Romans 9, as it is in chapters 10 through 11, is to establish that salvation is not by corporate election because of Jewish descent, nor by law keeping, but rather by faith alone. Conditional election to salvation is not corporate but individual because it is conditioned on one's faith in Jesus the Messiah. For the same reason, salvation cannot be by works of the law. Paul knows that his recentering of election and salvation on faith in the Messiah, rather than the mistaken Jewish concept that the Jewish people are elect as a group because they are physical descendants of Abraham, will be met by resistance from Jews. They will respond that his doctrine would render God unjust and his word a failure. Paul's response is to show his Jewish kinspeople that their theology was a misunderstanding of the way that God dealt with people, which is on the basis of their faith. Thus, he brings up Jacob and Esau to demonstrate that God has never saved people merely because they are Abraham's descendants. Paul uses three illustrations from the history of redemption to argue that the sovereign God alone has the right to set the terms of communion with himself, including his rejection of the unbelieving Jews. These illustrations, the hardening of Pharaoh, the potter and the clay, and the vessels of wrath and mercy, do not establish the unconditionality of election, but rather underscore Paul's message that it is God, not human beings, who sets the terms of salvation, and that this is by faith in the Messiah, not by Jewish descent or law-keeping. Most Jews have hardened themselves against God and his anointed one, and God is hardening and blinding them in response, but they still have an opportunity to repent and be saved if they will not resist his loving overtures, end quote. So that wraps up our discussion on Arminian conditional election uh, and the, the key understanding of God foreknows who will respond in faith. Therefore, he predestines those who will have faith to be conformed to Christ's image that is glorified, right? And that Romans 9 is not about unconditional election, but rather the conditions of salvation being faith, not by uh, genealogy or by keeping the law, right? And because foreknowledge is not foreordination, but rather having knowledge of who will accept the gospel call, then Ephesians 1 can likewise be interpreted as conditional election. So the real argument kind of boils down to how was Paul understanding predestination and election in Romans 8 and 9, specifically in relation to foreknowledge? And um, does the Calvinist interpretation of Romans 9 have weight to it? in terms of unconditional election. We'll talk about the Calvinist position next time, and we'll, we'll talk about how they view Ephesians 1 in brief. We'll talk about foreknowledge in brief, and then we'll talk about their explanation of Romans 9. And my bias will come out a little bit after that, whenever I have a section um, after Romans 9, just bringing in some more compelling discussion. And you can't tell, but I actually cut out a couple of minutes of dialogue. I think it's like five minutes of dialogue of me discussing my, my views of this interpretation of Romans 9 and, and what I think about this presentation, uh, then I decided, you know what? I, I'm not going to do that yet. We'll, we'll say that for the very end where I kind of highlight and look over the whole series as a whole. It'll be kind of like a post-Tulip series reflection. Um, and so I'm trying to keep that kind of kind of out of it, just, just trying to sit back and, and do that last. And so I, I did remove that um, and... I just want to let you know that it was tempting here. Um, so I encourage you to, to go back and sit back, re-listen to this, uh, reread Romans 9, and then we'll get to the Calvinist interpretation next week. If you are a patron, you have access to the show notes right now. We're sitting at 176 pages worth of show notes, and that's before I've wrapped up um, at this point recording because it's April 20th when I'm recording. 
Um, I have just started working on the extent of the atonement, which the extent of the atonement and um, perseverance of the saints section will go a little bit quicker um, because they logically follow these discussions on predestination. So if you are a patron, um, you can go pick up the show notes. And by the time that I'm done completely with the show notes, I'll polish them up. I'll proofread them better. And then I'll get you a final form of that. Um, if you appreciate Christ as a cure, consider joining the support team. Help us get us to our max goal at patreon.com forward slash Christ as a cure. The summer is coming. And over the summer, I want to give you all another exclusive patron course. And then you'll, of course, get early episodes that will be aired in the fall. And those early episodes will center with our first fall big series which will be on Christians and the Mosaic Law, essentially. So that's it for this episode. God bless you all. And until next time, have a great, great week.